In this episode of STEMiverse, Marcus and I talk with Ben Newsom. Ben is the founder of Physics Education, a company that specializes in delivering interactive science workshops and shows. Through Physics Education, Ben reaches around 300,000 children each year in person or via video conference in Australia or around the world. Ben is a qualified science teacher and a former environmental consultant, a children's summer camp director and a CSIRO education team member. Ben is the recipient of the 2013 Northern Districts Education Centre in Sydney, Winston Churchill Fellowship. He's on the leadership team for the International Society for Technology in Education Interactive Video Conferencing Group, is an ambassador for the Association of Science Education Technicians in New South Wales, a part of the Education Advisory Committee for the GWS Giants AFL team and a co-founder of the two non-profit museum collaborative networks, Visual Excursions Australia and the Pinnacle Education Collaborative. Wow, what a resume. This is STEMiverse episode 9. Welcome to STEMiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I am Peter Dalmaris, and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students, and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art better. Ben, thank you very much for joining us on STEMiverse. It's a um, great privilege to have you on. Um, I, was, uh, I met you a few, what was it now? six, seven weeks ago at uh, an event where we just happened, both of us, to be there. <laughs> and um, uh, I know that you are the founder of Physics Education, uh, which I'd like to ask you questions about. It looks like a great company. You, you do um, uh, physics uh, science in general, teaching uh, to kids around Australia. Got a, a huge audience of 300,000 plus children that participate uh, in, in wow. your various programs every year. That's massive. I'm very impressed. But I've seen some other uh, items in your CV, which are very impressive. So um, uh, I can see here that you are, let's say, uh, <laughs> an ambassador for the Association of Science Education Technicians in New South Wales. It's a nice big title. Um, you have the Winston Churchill Fellowship as well, and a few other bits and pieces. So, um, would you like to take the next few minutes and tell us a little bit about your background and kind of, in a nutshell, what led you to where you are today in teaching science? Sure. And um, yeah, thanks very much, guys, for having me along. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's been, it was great meeting you seven weeks ago at that uh, event. And um, when you asked me uh, what's led me to do this, oh gosh, <laughs> I don't even know what's in some ways, actually started me off down this old journey thing. But, um, yeah, look, I'm a science teacher. Uh, so trained as a science teacher, was teaching in Western Sydney schools. And um, I was lucky enough to come into, at that time, the CSIRO, CSIRO education um, outreach team. Um, they were running some fantastic uh, programs on, I think it was scientific method off the top of my head. Um, and 
what I knew is that I kind of wanted to do something that wasn't traditional teaching. I uh, loved teaching, had a lot of time, good time with the students and fellow teachers and everything else, but I kind of wanted to play with the fun stuff. Yep, yep. Like, like, that's the best way to describe it. And so I noticed a lot of fun things. Sorry, mate? So you must be a geek. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's, it's, to be honest, it's just I just figured I just want to do a bit of playing. I mean, uh, for me, uh, like all teachers, especially in the science space, um, the best times are when you're doing science experiments, the worst times when you're sitting in front of a textbook. So um, I didn't want to do that. And um, obviously teaching within a school would I'd be able to impact th- you know, several thousand lives very well um, from you know, year eight to year 12. Uh, but I kind of really entered teaching because I wanted to make a genuine impact as far as I could about teaching about how the world actually works. So um, when I saw the CSIRO team come around, uh, I thought I really want to do this because you could visit different schools day by day and show experiments and kids have fun and you get them wide and ready to go and then teachers could then follow on and use those examples in their traditional teaching. So I started working with them for a couple of years, uh, running programs, whether it's forensics or whatever. Uh, But towards the end of a couple of years with them, um, I really felt I wanted to unbox myself. I really just go, let's just do something myself uh, and enter the wilderness that is small business in some ways. Uh, But purely because I just wanted to have just the freedom to create. And so for me, we started off doing kids' science parties. Uh, Most of the schools we visited were actually remote schools. We would uh, it's funny I say we there was very much a plural royal we it was definitely only me at the time uh, where I just shove some stuff in a box put it in the back of a vehicle and drive out as far as a bitumen would take me into western New South Wales and teach kids at multiple towns until I ran out of petrol uh, so so what year was that just to get a, a time frame when about was that how, how long ago was that so uh, we started uh, so I started physics in 2004 and um the we went for a good year or two where we really were on the fringes of stem education nobody really knew who we were what we did and why would we care about this mob that can't spell properly uh so those people are wondering is physics spelled f-i-z-z-i-c-s because why not um anyway so a lot of the programs we ran were remote schools because um a number of places were just so busy the traditional outreach places from universities and things just were so booked up that to leave a metropolitan area, it would be rare at best. Um, so you just needed a crazy person like myself, just jump in a car and just drive. So wind this forward over time, we did more and more programs. And now to now this day, we see four, nearly 500 schools a year, something like that. Um, we've got staff in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and Canberra, and we teach globally via video conference, uh, which Certainly keeps us busy and keeps me with a lack of sleep, but it's good fun. Yeah, it's time frame, so it must be <laughs> yeah, yeah. particularly difficult. So when you were starting out, how did you get the schools to accept this crazy guy who, was, who would just rock up and teach, yeah. well, the fun side of science? Uh, how did you reach out to the schools and get them to go, okay, this is not some weirdo, this is actually a respected Maybe teacher about. <laughs> or educator? Yeah. Yeah. Um, How did you get started? Long, hard road and poor skills in marketing because I'm not. I'm a teacher. I just wanted to teach kids. And so for me, um, I was more interested about um, being true to how science works and how teaching works and respected the 
how what it's like within a school where you get throwing lots of different ideas from outside vendors and I didn't want to be that place that just sold to people. I just wanted to be a place that would do good stuff and if we do good programs, people are going to let people know about it. So for, that's why we had a very slow but sure and steady growth because um, I think we got. I think our very first gig was in front of um, it was a Bankstown uh, council actually at a, a um, like a sustainability festival. So we had like about I don't know ten schools or something rotating around different providers around sustainability and the environment. And I was one of them um, running a renewable energy program. Uh, you know, pretty straightforward, solar, wind, and all that type of stuff. Uh, and so one of those schools said, hey, that was cool. Can you come and do stuff with our other grade? And I said, I, I guess I can. <laughs> and came to the school, ran the program, and they kind of told someone else that, I don't know, this is before almost, you know, this is before really social media was really running properly. So I don't know, how, maybe they emailed each other or something. But it was just a very slow burn. Um, the reason we're doing remote schools wasn't just because places people had – uh, they were, had contended time to be able to get out to these schools. It was also because this was in the middle of the time when New South Wales uh, had a country areas programs funding where they had over 200, roughly 240 schools who would be – they were under federal, federal funds where they were specifically to get enrichment activities out to, you know, their places. And I was lucky enough to present, just hap- I didn't realize it was a usual deal. I'm fairly naive about these things. I was presenting in a show uh, and it turns out one of the science consultants was in front of the show and said, hey, would you like to come out to my region? Sure. <laughs> so all of a sudden we're touring uh, around Ningen and Burke and Western New South Wales. Um, we, you know, remote and kids and indigenous communities. Um, and then that, informa- that information started to fill for back to the city slowly <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we went from there. So, yeah, a long mm-hmm. road, but um, certainly it wasn't from sending stuff out to schools mm-hmm. and say, hey, book us. It was simply just through word of mouth, and in a lot of ways it's still to this day. Yeah, you did the kilometres. Now, obviously your the spelling of your company's name, Physics with a Z, yeah, is a bit Yeah, I was a C-grade <laughs> student in English, uh, C-plus yes, occasionally. Yes. <laughs> Well, that's pretty good. Uh, better than me, actually. Uh, <laughs> but it is kind of quirky, right? So um, does that reflect on the way that you deliver your science lessons? Yeah, that's a thing. I've actually had people ask me about this going, uh, you, you are, yeah, we've got a quirky name and why aren't you wearing the fancy lab coat that's been <laughs> tie-dyed, where's the weird hair and whatever. Um, but I mean, maybe there's actually a disconnect actually with our name and what we actually do. Um, but the presentation style is I, I don't want – I actually want to be true to the scientists. So very rarely will scientists actually wear lab coats, and you only wear lab coats if you need to protect yourself. In a lot of ways, they're in the way. And if you're an astronomer, why are you wearing a lab coat? If you're a scuba diver, that's like the worst thing ever. <laughs> uh, so um, I didn't want to go down the quirky side. I didn't want to do dress up as a scientist because I did – one of the – like, you know, say, actually, I used to work as a scientist before I was a teacher. I used to work as an environmental consultant. Um, so I didn't want to pr- produce a caricature that's not real. Um, and as for the um, the quirkiness, I don't know. I, I figure that it's just, it's just a slightly play- fun, slightly playful play. Like, we do work with kids in a way that tries to engage them. But uh, the pedigree of the company is still a lot of us are science teachers for museum educators, science communicators, and we kind of try and be real to the science and real to the industry that is science communication. I think that 
it is cool. There are a lot of places, and there's probably some even for I know there might be some listeners to your podcast who are science communicators in their own thing. Mm-hmm. But I do know from feedback from teachers that dressing up and being the, the wad, wild, wacky science magician, when you ask the students what they have perceived from their lesson, what what happened, they'll tell you it was magic. Mm-hmm. It was a – and that was – it's not what you want to do. I mean, magicians have a place. They do a fantastic job at, you know, <laughs> deceiving us. But science is about sharing knowledge, not hiding it. And, yep. yeah, <laughs> I use the, the science to sell the substance. That helps. Awesome. So you just try to be authentic. That's what it really was about because the authenticity in science is – it has the potential to draw people in it. Is, it can be real and still very, very interesting mm-hmm. and very exciting. You don't need to masquerade yourself as a clown, right? Yeah, that's it. And so you actually look at our website nowadays. I mean, it really is quite muted. When you actually like, hey, yeah, we've got our title there because like we're so, somewhat committed now to our name. Um, but the, when you even look at the title, like we strip back a lot of the – there's a bit of playfulness within the logo slightly, but it really is just a beaker and we're interested about how the world works, hence the – the structure of the atom is sort of going around it, even though we know full well that's not how what an atom looks like. <laughs> but um, the idea is that we really are more about the science and the experiments themselves were more than grab a student than um, crazy hair and slime everywhere. Great. Let's concentrate on science then. <laughs> so um, I would like to talk uh, about your book. So sure. you recently published a book. I think it was published in 2017 early. Is that right? Yeah, very early. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's called Be Amazing, How to Teach Science the Way Primary Kids Love. So I'll jump in here. Yeah. I guess the first question I'd like to know is why did you write the book? I got a bee in my bonnet. <laughs> I don't know. I was running – I mean, we run so many programs um, to schools and we do a lot of professional development workshops as well. And just, I don't know, just one evening, I don't know, and literally this is how my head works, but April or May last year – I just kind of thought I keep on repeating myself so often about certain things in these workshops and teachers love to hear about how to teach science in a certain way that will grab kids' attention. And I thought, this is fantastic, but what if I miss, I don't know, miss a sentence or two or whatever I'm saying in a particular workshop, what if what if I just write this stuff down? <laughs> and so that um, if we're running a session and someone wants to really do a deep dive into how kids learn science. Um, not so much about curriculum dot points. It's not really about that. Just literally it's how, what kids are thinking about when they walk into your classroom, uh, how to set up your classroom so they might even care about the science you're about to teach, uh, how to get your lessons so it actually teaches variables and the scientific method so it actually does looks after the science properly. Uh, and then once you've got that bit done, how can you engage others, not just your own classroom, but your, 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 your fellow grade, your entire school, or maybe even reach it further out into your local community and really start engaging people about how the world works beyond that. So I just started typing and mm-hmm. suddenly a few months later. published. <laughs> that's probably the best way to describe it. So would you say that these, this is a collection of uh, lessons that perhaps you learned in your career as a teacher and as a scientist uh, that distillation of what works and what doesn't and how to get the most out of a session with students. Yep. Uh, that's what's in the book, right? That's pretty much. So, I mean, 
I didn't want to be yet another 101 experiments book. Mm. Like there's so many of those in libraries and, I, and they've got their place. Um, I mean, one day we'll probably write one, I guess, but we'll probably have teach, teach a black line masters, which will help them do more stuff than just, hey, let's pour vinegar and bicarb together. Um, it's more about the practice of how kids will learn science um, well. So we look at their misconceptions about what they're bringing into the room and you'd be amazed. I mean, there's like half a chapter or something, just a whole bunch of dot points of what kids actually believe heat does, light yes, does, sound yes. does. What the clouds are like, for example, white rains, there's not holes in the clouds where the water is coming out of, right? That's a common yeah, misconception. Yeah, seriously, like, <laughs> it looks like I just made this stuff up. Um, I mean, perhaps I should have this book in front of me, but the um, those things. I just sat down one evening and tried to brainstorm all the weird and wild things I had heard or as my staff had heard whilst presenting science. Every one of those dot points are real. So, And actually, there was a story put into the book about this. Um, uh, one of our staff at work, I don't want to go too far into it because we, we promised that her mother wouldn't be forever unnamed. Um, but you know who she is. Hello, how are you doing? Uh, but the the she was talking to her granddaughter and the granddaughter put her hand up in the air and pointed at this thing in the sky and said, uh, grandma, what is this? And grandma didn't know what this thing was. And my good friend of mine, one of our really you know strong, close associates at work said, uh, what are you talking about, grandma? That's the moon. Um, and grandma said, no, it's not the moon uh, because it's day. The moon doesn't come out during the day. <laughs> yes. Wow. Now you have to understand that this, Woman, she's a smart woman, but at 55 years old, she's still not realized that the moon can come out during the day. And it, and so it kind of got me thinking, wow, just we're in such a great position, not just as science communicators like someone that does what I do, but teachers in general have this ability to create or destroy misconceptions. And I think that's fantastic. What a, what a, what a perfect position where you can set kids up to be able to know how the world really works. But on the flip side, that means you need to know how the world works. <laughs> so it, it means you can create an issue where kids generally believe something because they experience it and now their teacher says it. So it's, it's, that's an interesting part. So, yeah, we do throw – in Be Amazing, there are a, a number of experiments quickly described um, for people to, you know, you know, sink their teeth into a, you know, a maker event or something. Hmm. Uh, but I'm really more about trying to – bury into what a kid is actually thinking and doing and how teachers can help them work better in the classroom. Yeah. So the story that you just mentioned, that's in the first chapter titled Understanding the Students. So this is a chapter, I suppose, written to help teachers understand the students, uh, knowing what kind of misconceptions students might be bringing from home, for example, helps you to address them, right? And I guess they're very good... Um, discussion um, opportunities. So let's, as I kind of like what Mythbusters do on TV, okay, there's this misconception, that mm -hmm. this is false belief. Let's analyze it and let's see what's behind it and try to reach uh, the, re the reality of the matter. Well, it is. Um, there's, I think there's a picture in the book. Um, I saw it uh, in a school in Western Sydney. Um, it was simply titled, What is Heat? And so what the teacher had done is a really simple way to get their lesson, you know, pumping was they gave the kids a whole bunch of post-it notes and they got them to write down, what do you think heat is? Simple, right? Eh? 
And so you then pop them on the board and then they could then start rearranging in different ways. I can't remember exactly what this picture looks like, but I had to take a photo of it and I, I had a chat with the teacher on that is brilliant what you're doing because you're really grabbing straight away the kids' attention about what they think they know about to eat is. They can then say what they'd like to know and what, what don't they know. And that means they could tailor their lesson according to their students' needs. And that's brilliant. Um, and so simple. I mean, a, a pack of post-it notes, they ain't that much. Mm-hmm. And that's really an example of learning by doing as well because the kids now have to think about what do I think? Probably they've never thought of this before until the teacher asked them, what do you think heat is? And then they had to actually sit down and, and try hard and think about it and write down the post-it notes. And uh, that was actually that activity made them realize the misconceptions. Suppose when the teacher explained what heat really is, that process of going from the false to the right, to the correct, probably stuck with them. It's something that they will remember for a long time. It's part of the, the method of science, of self-correcting. Amazing. Yeah, it's a good way to go. I mean, it doesn't have to be just about science anyway. I mean, there'll be people here that teach history, art and maths mm, and whatever exactly. else. Um, just it's the, whole, it's the whole saying, know your audience. Who is who are these people? What do they know? What do they care about? What can we do to add value? And that's a good way to start a lesson. Awesome. So the second chapter in your book is called Priming the Classroom. How do you do that? I guess it was sort of like, you know, the, you know when you walk into a room, um, I remember when I was doing student teacher days, um, and my master teacher um, was very big on this. And the idea was is that having something that's on the desk or hanging from the ceiling or whatever you're going to do, something that grabs attention straight away, that the kids straight away know that they're walking into something that's just not magical, but something special. They're going to have something interesting to look at and they can start formulating in their head, what does this lesson be about? Let's be honest, they're not all perfect academic students. I wasn't one of them either. I'd be going there wild like every other kid. But um, if there's something kind of interesting in the classroom, inevitably, even if they're in year nine or year four, it doesn't matter. Um, if you've got something cool on the desk, it obviously grabs their attention to some degree. Um, and so priming the classroom was written around that idea of what can you do in your classroom? How can you set it up? That will help students to at least engage with what you're about to do. So it's a, it's a stimulus right? It draws your attention. Can you give us an example of uh, what would you use in, in a classroom, for example? <laughs> um, now, I get the advantage of having kind of cool stuff hanging around, right? So I must say this is unfair. But um, I mean, obviously, I could say beakers and bits and pieces, but I mean, that's fairly old, pretty predictable in a high school lab. What isn't predictable is a mannequin with uh, a shirt on it with kind of like oozing pretend blood off it and crime scene tape around it and you're about to talk about a forensics lab. That's going to grab attention. Now, of course, you have to be very careful about this. I must say as a caveat, be aware of your students' backgrounds yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. uh, and there may be some issues here behind it, but that will grab attention. I, I absolutely guarantee it. Um, they know full well that this is a different day that you've set up a pretend crime scene and you've sprung it on them. I guarantee they'll listen, at least for the first five minutes. It's then up to your delivery from there. I have to ask, have you ever set up a crime scene and then only realized about a student's uh, past after the fact? It's a fair question. No, I haven't. Um, so what we actually do when we run our forensics program, the um, teachers will let us know. Because, I mean, that's the thing. Like We reach 300,000 students a year. We're not going to know the individual needs of each student. But we have a very clear um, discussion with the teachers saying, look, you have a choice. Uh, we can run it around a 
a genuine, um, you know, bad murder scene or whatever. But of course, if you don't want to go down that route, uh, we can simply sli- slightly tweak it and run a um, session around who stole the parrot. Right. So, so I kid you not. So yeah. who stole the parrot? So it's got the same stations. It's got the same blood types and everything else. But in this case, the robber stole. Uh, they cut themselves on the cage as I was taking the fifty thousand dollar bird away. It's, it's a ridiculous <laughs> story, but it allows us to still fit it in without freaking the kids out. So um, there are many ways to you, you could, I suppose you could have a bird cage with little bits of feathers around, and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you have little bits of blood there, it might freak them out, and they think maybe you actually have done something bad with an animal. You won't you've got to watch that. But look, I, it's a fair question. I know it's a bit odd, but um, there'll be teachers, there'll be people listening to this podcast who know full well that they've set up a lesson with full intention of a great day, and it's just gone pear shaped. And I could see. You got to sort of do your homework a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Plan up front. Know your audience. Again, it goes back to chapter number one. Understand the students and uh, what they will tolerate or not. So, yeah. Let's move on to chapter three. So, uh, that looks like a big one, actually, uh, because you talk about teaching tactics. So, yep. uh, you, you go through a, a variety of things here that um, a teacher can use as far as, you know, uh, the way that they present information or they go about a lesson. You include um, STEM pitch fest, for example, as one tactic. Could you explain that? Now, that was a, that's a sort of a fun one we designed once because we had to um, come up with something that would grab some gifted and talented uh, year 10 students um, and they didn't. At the time, the school didn't want us to just run a program where it was just, here's the science, now see you later. What they wanted to do was have the students create something during half their day. So it was actually a specialized program. It's not on our website. It's just something we just ran as an ad hoc thing. So create something during half the day, but then go into a pitch fest like Shark Tank or Dragon Den type environment where we had a, a pretend panel. And the kids would have to pitch in like three minutes why their thing they've created is great, what its use is, why the world needs it now. <laughs> and, and, and the whole idea is that the class would then vote um, so that – and actually, by the way, they weren't voting there and then and there so the um, you know, kids got embarrassed that so they got no votes. <laughs> it was all done you know, silently. But the idea was is that we're just trying to get, the, get through to kids that science doesn't exist by itself. It's a discipline that's in, interconnected with all other industries. And, yeah, the science for, you know, the classic um, what is the nature of the universe, Big Bang type theory stuff. Um, but quite a lot of science is connected to the industry whereby it produces a cool new innovation in a product or material or whatever. Um, so what I was trying to get through to the kids is that STEM, the E in STEM, the engineering, the one that often can get a little bit missed, is you have to solve a problem giving limited time and limited resources. But just because you can create said contraption doesn't mean the world wants it. So I was trying to like mesh it all together in kind of a weird businessy thing. Kids have a lot of fun with it. And so that particular chapter around creating a pitch fest was just a playful way of trying to bring the real world into a lesson. And um, I've had some good feedback from some teachers that it, it can work quite well. You've also got a section on establishing a maker space and mm. I guess joining yep. the maker movement. Why do you think that is important? The makerspace, I mean, I mean, that's got a real role on. I mean, it's, it's been going for a while now, for the last few years. But in, um, if people haven't heard what the maker movement is, um, the it's simply just how can we repurpose 
goods in a different way to solve a different problem or a new problem. So often you see weird and wacky pulled apart technological bits. They get shoved onto cardboard and wood and whatever to solve, you know, often weird contraptions. But the reason why we are makerspaces, I suggest, is an idea in schools is that it allows kids to explore their creativity. So the idea being that, um, look, your majority of your lessons are f- and they're not formulaic, but you, you've got a very set outcome within a set given time. But wouldn't it just be cool if you've got a spare room in your cl- in your school? Now, let's be honest, not all schools have a spare room. So maybe you have a maker cupboard. But um, the idea being that if you can have a space where kids can have an ongoing project, whether it goes for several weeks or a month or, hey, even a year, it doesn't really matter. If there's something where kids can spend time building in their lunch hour. I mean, let's be honest, it's just a, it's a glorified version of a chess club. It just happens to be with materials, right? right? So um, obviously got supervisory issues and make sure there's safety involved and things. But I mean, maker, the maker movement allows to put the science, the technology, the engineering, the arts and the mathematics, so STEAM, all together where kids create a project in the set time and set materials. And it's not as prescriptive. The kid comes up with it. So that's why I like them. Um, they are getting a lot of um, press these days. I mean, I know, hey, when it was, you, know, you know it's pretty big when the White House has a maker, a maker mm-hmm. movement mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. But um, it, fundamentally, it's just kids putting stuff together and what happens. So to get a, a maker space in your school, what would be the minimal um, investment, I suppose, by the school? Is it the space, a few desks, uh, any materials? I just wonder, how would you go about creating a makerspace? It's all about budget, eventually. It comes down to budget and uh, your reticence to expose kids to risk. (laughs) It might be an interesting way to say this. So um, obviously, if you're going to put something like this, I mean, don't go gung-ho yourself and then get yourself in trouble with your school board or whatever. You don't need that hassle. So make sure that your executive's on board. And if you're one of the executives, fantastic. (laughs) Help you go. (laughs) But um, in terms of it, it just comes down to budget. What are you prepared to have um, to get? Now, you don't have to get fancy stuff. You don't have to go and buy brand new materials and craft materials and new motors and I mean, you, you see some maker spaces where they've got 3D printers and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, that's for the people with the budget. If you haven't got much of a budget, repurpose old things that are getting thrown out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, at least in Australian cities, I mean, I know these podcasts are global, so I'm not sure what happens elsewhere. But um, certainly around where I live in Sydney, uh, you have these co- tip collection days and people just put mm. stuff out on the streets. Yes. Now, here's Dump the thing. Now, you've got to know what you're collecting, though, because um, – seeing that we are doing a STEM podcast and you, considering your guys' background, yes, capacitors are concerning <laughs> and they, they do store charge and do, they do release charge pretty fast. So I would suggest not creating TV tubes. It's not a good idea. Um, it, but the, there are some things like old um, video players, they get thrown out all the time. And you can open that up and get little motors and little all sorts of bits and pieces. And I don't know, it's... It doesn't have to be even offcuts from your woodwork or metalwork place. Um, get tools from garage sales. Um, but it just comes down to if the kids are going to go into this space, no matter how big it is, is that there's got to be some form of induction process. Here is the thing. Here's how to use the thing so it doesn't 
hurt your thing. Yeah, if that helps. From there, I mean, it just comes down to budgetary constraints. Yeah. So, so the the barrier to entry is not as high as a lot of people might think. Uh, a lot of the materials can actually be donated or found for free. And as long as you have somebody there to help out the kids with those initial steps, some orientation, you're good to go. So let's say you have the budget. How would you leverage technology? Yeah, and that, that's, the, that's the biggie, isn't it? There's so many things you can do. Um, I mean, isn't there an app for everything? Um, but look, the, the ones that you often see these days, you often see 3D printers, which means um, there are a number of um, apps that will connect with your 3D printer. Uh, we're a big fan of Maker's Empire, uh, though there are others around. What is Maker's Empire? Maker's Empire. Um, so Maker's Empire uh, is, a, is a crew out of Adelaide who are now running programs in China and New York. Um, we do a little bit of work with them on a program as well, um, whereby it's a piece of software where kids can create figures and buildings and cool stuff in a 3D environment, so manipulating blobs and bits to shove together in a software environment, and um, they can send those files to a 3D printer and have it printed. Um, so what's cool about it, it doesn't have to be just hey, let's just make a figurine, now we're over it, let's not use it. Um, you can use these 3D printers to solve a problem. Um, I know that on their site there's a video where they posed a challenge, and I believe it was upper primary. I may get this wrong, but I think it was upper primary, where the kids had to design in their head what a prosthetic arm would do. How would it work? So obviously it's a big challenge, and kids had to work on that for quite a while, but the kids could see that it's not just a, hey, let's just make a random thing because my teacher's making me. It's the idea was to have them try and create a solution using a simple device. So to answer your question about technology, um, I mean, technology is, everyone often thinks digital and it's so tempting to see this digital stuff right now. But effectively, technology has been around since the wheel got invented. So any simple machine um, that does stuff is technically technology. So um, I would um, obviously have soldering irons and all sorts of stuff that can just support the building of the thing. Uh, I would suggest as advice uh, is don't just get the thing because it's shiny. Yes. Um, we, we're, um, we're probably a little bit uh, – uh, we, we like a shiny thing here at work <laughs> physics as well. Um, but there's got to be a need, especially if you're, spe- if you're spending big money on shiny things, you want to be able to use them a lot. So what are the shiny things you like? Well, it's kind of, um, I mean, often you see um, people amalgamate Lego Robotics or a robotic something um, into their device or whatever they're going to do. Um, but mind you, Lego has its place. I mean, if there's any Lego executives I like your product, we use it. Um, but there, there's, you can use Arduino, Raspberry Pi. You can use smaller stuff to create similar effects. Um, it's just a... Um, I know I keep on hearkening back to a budget, but it just comes down to get the thing that you can afford and that the kids are going to consistently use. If they don't know how to use it, um, I must say I've seen a number of schools buy cool things and then they sit in the cupboard, especially when the teacher who did the time to learn the thing mm-hmm. transfers to a new school. And that can be an issue. So, so are you seeing like a consistent trend of certain things ending up in the cupboard? Yeah, well, it's not because they lock them. It's because um, you might get 
a really like a, a teacher's really like right into this maker thing. And so, I mean, what can often happen with these maker spaces is that one or two teachers are like, this is my thing. I'm all over this. It's going to be my the thing I get to do. And they're right into it. They know so much stuff about what the kids are designing and they get right into it. Um, but inevitably, um, they either transfer or they retire. Mm-hmm. And unless they've trained their fellow teachers around how to use some of this stuff, the kids move on. Because let's be honest, these kids with tech these days, they usually know more than teachers. I'm, they know more than <laughs> yes. me. They scare me. Um, so you let them basically run the lesson because it's their free time in lots of ways. Um, but once those kids graduate and if you haven't trained other ki- kids on how to do stuff, um, you then got this potential of you set up a situation where you've invested in this tech, whatever that tech might be, um, and if the people then leave – you then got a cupboard filled with cool stuff, which over time becomes outdated. Um, so it's not supported anymore. Um, or kids aren't even aware it even exists. And um, the number of times I've seen things just being thrown out that are perfectly fine. They're just 15 years old and no one knows how to use them anymore. Yep. So it's good to go for something classic that has a, a larger base in terms of expert, people with the necessary expertise to make use of them instead of, as you said, the, the latest and greatest uh, shiny object that uh, yeah. that hits your attention. But in some cases, you actually don't need any technology to teach technology, right? So I'm looking here at chapter four. You talk about robotics, um, teaching robotics without robots. Can you tell us about that? The reason I put teaching robotics without ro- robotics, I wrote that there because I was looking at the chapter and thought, I was trying to imagine a a school in Africa, northern Canada, somewhere where they're just in the middle of nowhere and may not have much budget. How on earth can you teach procedural thinking without the stuff if you haven't got the fancy stuff? And then I'm talking, this is ridiculous. I've tried to write it as if we didn't have straws or whatever. So rather than just writing, I went out to a a class and went, let's try and pretend how we teach robotics. How How do robots work? Period. Um, and so we're using our arms and our legs to say, program me to walk across the room and sit on a chair. And it's, in, it's actually incredibly hard, it's very hard. to <laughs> describe what you've got to do to actually move and then sit down. Now, yeah, let's be honest. It wasn't a fantastic robotics lesson. Of course, they didn't get to touch a robot. But my gosh, that grabbed kids' brains going just to try and get their head around how to move an ankle and a knee at the right time. I did a lot of falling down that lesson. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jeez. The wrong instruction yeah, does but, not compute. <laughs> yeah, and so, I mean, the rest Reboot. of that chapter is just a couple of different robots around. I mean, there's a lot of other ones that exist. And, I mean, I think I mentioned B-Bots, Blue-Bots, Lego Robotics, but it's only because, hey, we use them a lot, so I've got a bit of experience with them. I mean, there's heaps of robotics platforms. Um, when it comes down to um, uh, this type of computational thinking, it's just, if I do this, what will happen? If I do this, what will happen? If I don't do any of it, what will happen? Mm-hmm. It's just the how do the ones and zeros flow in your um, code? That's great, yeah. I've, I tried that technique uh, as well a very long time ago and I had similar results, but I had some uh, safety protocols uh, as well so that I wouldn't bump against doors or fall down the stairs. <laughs> yeah, you can do all sorts of stuff like <laughs> It doesn't even have to be like, seriously, getting you to walk across the room and sit down can be difficult. You can even get them to, 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 to get them to understand spatial awareness in a robot. It's really hard. Get them to say, "I make me pick up this apple. 
Yes. So sitting at the desk, as simple as that, and then trying to even understand from their eyes where your hand is in relation to the apple is difficult because I said, you must tell me distances. You must tell me angles. Like I was just, yeah, you can be really quite, you know, quite <laughs> mean about it. Would they come around with a measuring tape to measure those distances or would they just well, try right. and judge you? I agree. You're yeah. right. We totally should do that next time. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I mean, what it does though, it, Jesus sets the kids up to actually understand how robots think. And so when they start learning the programs, it's better because, look, there's a lot of drag and drop code programs around. And they're fantastic, but I kind of wonder, it's like, let's put the pretty picture here and it does this, as opposed to what does the pretty picture actually do within the robot? And understanding that part's actually far more critical than moving pretty pictures around on a screen. Yeah. So you've got a section here on social media and uh, I guess education as well. That, that sounds a little bit dangerous to me when you think about kids and social media. Yes, Snapchat, yes. Yeah, it is. And so that was a bit of a thing. I sort of wondered, do I do it? Do I not? What do we do? So you'll actually find, actually, you've got the early iteration of this book. Um, so we've actually written a different version because it involves Vine. Um, so we've actually changed it into an Instagram space. So what you do is you have to protect your kids. There are rules around social media and children and what they can and can't do. So social media is a, inherently about communicating between people. So there are platforms, edgy blogs and uh, uh, what's it called, a seesaw and other things where you can protect kids within a safe environment for them to upload videos and pictures and describe their whatever. So, yes, you can do around um, get kids to blog about their experiences, describe it to others so that rather than just writing up a project in their science book to be marked by the teacher, yeah. does your thing is your, is your experiment, is, are you actually really describing what truly occurred so someone can repeat it? I mean, you could actually challenge kids. I'm just making stuff up here right now, guys. But you could challenge kids whereby you could have, all right, you can do this experiment and this half of the room will do this experiment. You're going to write it up and now you're going to use each other's procedures to repeat the experiment again. Um, so that's just a – social media itself, I mean, I, there's, a, there's a bit of um, concern around exposing kids to social media, but my headspace around this is it exists anyway. They will use it anyway, and it, even if they're underage, some of the kids will create pseudonyms and, and set themselves up anyway. So I feel within the caveats and safety of your school policy and everything else is run it within protected environments and at least introduce them around the safety around using social media. Um, and if you're using ones that are more publicly viewable, um, whether you're posting pictures, like I know there's, there's a whole bunch of people who follow us, like classrooms um, in Ireland and America who follow our Twitter feed um, or Instagram where it's literally their class. It says Mr. Steve's class. And you can see these kids' these kids' pictures or whatnot. So obviously the parents are giving permission for the kids to be involved. But all the kids do is they submit their videos and their pictures or their ideas to their teacher. The teacher moderates it and then sends it out into the white, big wide world. But what this does is taking them out of a private space. And, of course, you've got them, again, underline again, make it safe and everything else so that no one gets in trouble. If you can show your even just your local community – what you're doing in your classroom, it's not this hidden environment which people don't understand what you're doing in the room. They can see the value that schools add to kids' education and kids can communicate about what they love and what they don't love. And so that's, what, that's at least on one side of it, yeah. 
It's very similar like in the old days, like when I was a student, um, I was supposed to write a report for a particular assignment, for example, and that report would go to my teacher. He would be the only person to read it, give me a mark. Now, that is extremely limited. All this work just went to one person. I got a mark in and maybe a bit of feedback and that's it. But what with what you're proposing here using social media is a way to uh, get kids to document the work that they do and then share it with a lot of people, potentially with billions of people, and potentially again receive feedback from all these people. Uh, there is a tremendous value in that. I think it's very compatible with maker education as well. And considering that all the safety issues are dealt with for children, I think that that's also part of the scientific method where what you do gets documented, shared with other people who can criticize it, perhaps reproduce your experiment or whatever you build and then learn through that collaborative process. So there's a lot of value in that uh, if done properly and moderated. Yeah, and it goes very far. I mean, it's pretty hard to look on Facebook these days without seeing a teacher saying, I want to prove to my students how far how far things go. Um, there's a good friend of mine who um, – uh, so I, I sit on a few different boards um, and uh, one of them, this, this bloke from South Korea – regularly every year does this thing with Flat Stanley. Flat Stanley is a book that some people might know. And he gets Flat Stanley, he sends it out to his friends like myself in Australia, got friends in South Africa and America and South America. And he gets us to all print out Flat Stanley and then takes Flat Stanley around and show pictures of Flat Stanley going around the place. And kids just get an idea that with one email, one post, and he, he primes us all, right? He says, hey, by the way, we're going to do this you know, soon. Start feeding it in so those kids can just see what happens. And they see how very quickly this information gets shared around. Um, but, yeah, within that chapter, though, I believe well, I also uh, talked about Slack and Trello as well as a, as a social media thing too. I mean, I know it's kind of odd to say that Slack and Trello are so it's, uh, social media because traditionally most people think of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and everything else. But, again, because social is about discussions. Um I was. I'm very interested about trying to make and get. So trying to get rid of roadblocks to learning. So I looked at uh, Trello. If people aren't aware of what Trello is, it's a um, project management app, basically. So think of a whole bunch of post-it notes on the table, uh, where you get to write up certain whatever you whatever's got to get done onto different post-it notes, and you arrange them in order, a bit like a Pinterest board. Um, and so it's kind of useful. So for me, you could think about this. This is a good collaborative school place, even just if it's done within your own classroom in, in, um, where kids could then work on shared projects, who's in charge of what, when are the due dates, add attachments of files, photos, and checklists. It's really neat and useful. And if you wanted to, within a protected shared environment, you could invite parents. Some teachers may not want to invite parents. It's totally up to you. But it just means that um, it's a social space and a project board. And what I like about this is let's not ignore the science just for a little bit in the real world project-based learning, which is we all heard about PBL a lot. That happens in business, industry. A fish and chip shop needs to organize getting stuff in. It doesn't matter. It's a a good skill to have irrespective of the science. Uh, Same thing with Slack. Slack is a communications tool and, you know, it's exploded around the world. But I wrote it from a point of how it could be useful in a teaching environment where I think of it just when I was teaching my email box was filled with clutter and spam. And it wasn't just so much spam. Like it was within the, within um, intra-organizational communications that could have simply been a text or not a long-winded email. 
But you had to pre-sort that email. So I found it, I thought, why not write about that so that people could see how Slack could be useful, that people could pre-sort their messages for you before you even look at them. It's a, it's a very unusual topic in an education book. I haven't seen any of that being discussed in other books, so that's just a very useful chapter that you've got there. But that, that mm. also ties really well with chapter number six, engaging the community. So you're publishing yeah. out all this good work in the various social media, and uh, but you also have, I suppose, more down-to-earth, <laughs> real-life means of engaging the community, right? Can you yeah. give us a couple of examples of that, of how to engage the community? Of course. Um, so the traditional way is a science fair. Everyone loves a science fair. And everyone's school hall or open space can easily be converted into something that works. Um, traditionally, it's kids showing off their wares. What have they been learning? What have they done? Um, but I wanted to take that to another level. Where we did a... Um, like we were often involved in a multitude of different festivals and things around National Science Week, which happens in the middle of August every year in Australia. And undoubtedly other countries have other versions as well. But I got to see one really work whereby the science fair got done down the middle of a street in the Hunter Valley, north of Sydney, uh, whereby the teachers were guided by a resident scientist, so a local environmental scientist, to contact and work with local businesses, cafes, barbershops, the whole thing right down the street of Dungog um, in New South Wales uh, where they would give up a little bit of their space for a child to put their student desk and their experiment in their, in their shop, whatever they're doing. And the public could see what the kids were doing. And so it was it. fun. <laughs> it was kind of cool because when you think about it, of course you want to do a science fair in your home, in your school, but inevitably the only people who turn up are the parents who have the kids in the first place. Um, if, if you run this stuff down your school, down the actual main street, and of course you want to have your local council or whatever your government body is on size so they don't freak out. But the businesses who participated, their feedback was fantastic because they were getting foot traffic. They were getting people buying rice creams. They were getting people buying whatever it is there was in, in their room. They were being seen as pillars of their community because they're doing a community event. The students loved it because they got to show off. I mean, what kid doesn't want to show off? Um, the school gets to show off and effectively say, look how cool our students are for doing these bits. And by um, organizing the, um, the local uh, town hall, they're able to run, uh, meet a scientist, do lectures with, um, with the local environment officers. It was a great thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, engaging the community can be low key or it can be a bit bigger. Um, my world is not just doing science festivals, but the community is not just who you can see face to face, but like this podcast, we're meeting over well, Skype. Um, I've seen festivals that are rolling on a 24 hour day where you see every time zone coming up with kids connecting in a, in a safe spot. And they learn about what they've been doing in their world. They often have like a theme, like the last one was around World Water Day. Um, and the kids were doing experiments and learning about the importance of clean and fresh water and, and actually water science of pH and this, you know, whatever. Um, the kids around the world were just following this time frame going around. And that's still a community event, but it's global. Yeah. And that's oh, cool. That's How would you suggest uh, that a school – begins their engagement with the community so that they learn the ropes as opposed to going straight to what you just recommended, like a rolling time, a global 24-hour event. It's probably <laughs> kind of hard to begin with. What would be the easiest way to get started? 
<laughs> baby, baby steps. <laughs> Don't bite off too much. Um, and this is the problem too. Like I also know, like, I mean, of course we run so many professional development programs. It can be easy to freak people out with stuff like that. And I get that. Um, cause I was freaked out about it when I first heard about these things. Too. Um, but it's kind of like, um, the more you get to exposed to it and try a little bit with a little bit of risk, but not too bad, you can get closer and closer to, um, running these larger events. But I say, I say small scale, start something in your school. Like firstly, get your executive happy and ready to go to run a science event in your school, whatever it might be. How do you do that? How do you make the powers that be happy? And, uh, how do you... I guess, uh, get them to see your point of view and get them engaged in what you're trying to achieve. Uh, it sounds like politics, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Probably is. Uh, and some people might be nodding their head as they walk their dog or drive their car right now. But um, obviously every school has its own dynamic and we full know well. And, and as outreach professionals, we see different dynamics in the same schools. Like this, you, th- you think the school around the corner is the same. It's not. It's, they're often different. So there's going to be personalities involved, but it comes down to um, if you, you just say, let's just say worst case, right? Your school doesn't want to get involved for whatever reason, perce- perceptions of risk or don't want to put their head out of the shell, whatever it is that they don't want to do. You can run something in your own classroom and have your grades visit. <laughs> mm-hmm. There you go. Start small. Start small. I mean um, – the you don't if you get the little wins to happen so that people get comfortable that it is possible and then maybe make it a little bit bigger the next year i mean i always like the long view um that some of these events i've seen have grown from something very small i mean a a non-profit i co-founded with australian museum and sydney um sydney opera house and a few others uh called virtual excursions australia um started off with three of us sitting around at a conference in Cairns in 2012 saying, I wish that all the virtual excursions providers, so people who did distance education via video conference, just spoke with each other on a regular basis and told each other what you do, what we've learned and all that type of stuff. And that grew from, you know, you know four or five museums um, to 40 in Australia, <laughs> mm-hmm. all sharing knowledge in various different ways. Um and grew a large community who would want to connect with these places. Um, and I was lucky enough to uh, do a Churchill Fellowship on science education video conferencing where I went to North America and saw 26 museums doing their own thing. And I said the same thing to them at ISTE, the National Society of Technology and Education Conference. I, I asked them, so look, this idea of collaborative uh, work has worked in Australia. Why don't you do it in North America? So now there's another group over there called the Pinnacle Education Collaborative. It's the same thing as like 25 museums or whoever it is, all working together to, to start to, to create events that work together. Now they started from nothing, absolutely nothing, but they grew. And they grew because we had a bit of audacity. We said, stuff it, let's do it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the humble beginnings, great things happening. <laughs> and I believe you could do that within a school. If your executive is not keen, start in your own classroom. Get a paired, part, paired partner. Find a Skype partner. I mean, it doesn't have to be over the top, but you can grow things from something quite small. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Uh, so uh, be amazing. Uh, I'm talking about your book. Yeah, <laughs> As well. yeah it, I think it's, it's a great book for anybody who's thinking of any of what we discussed to, to get started and, and get some really amazing and practical ideas. So 
uh, highly recommended. So for the next few minutes, uh, me and Marcus would like to ask you a few quick questions, very practical things. Uh, and uh, for example, uh, we'd like to know if there's a particular person, either historical or still living, or if somebody you knew personally or not, that has influenced the way that you teach your teaching philosophy. Yeah, it's kind of a thing, isn't it? There's so many people that you could be influenced by it. And um, I kind of actually started, we actually started, I started thinking about this and started actually putting some um, quotes <laughs> together. And um, it's, it's sitting on our site and you see these quotes around. So there's actually probably not one, there's, there's quite quite a few. So um, for me, um, in terms of influences, I, I like the um, the headspace that Elon Musk has with the idea of just, you know, let's just make things happen irrespective of what people uh, have to say. I mean, there's a quote that says, rockets are cool. There is no getting around that. <laughs> it's very <laughs> true. Yes. Um, there's another quote, uh, Robert Heinlein wrote one, which is, uh, everything is theori theoretically impossible until it is done. <laughs> Um, Carl Sagan, valid criticism, criticism does you a favor. There's so many. So I couldn't just say one person. Um, I mean, I'm not really, it sounds like a, like a, a, a quotes person, but, uh, it's like the idea of, um, just cause it's so now doesn't mean it has to be so later if that helps. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, great quotes, uh, quotes, by the way. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> we'll include them in the show notes. Um, in your teaching, do you have any applications that help you manage 300,000 <laughs> students apps. Uh, you, or apps right? that you can't live without? How do you organize yourself? Trello, I'm guessing. <laughs> is it Trello? Trello is one, Slack's another. I would suggest coffee. Lots of coffee. <laughs> no, I have a fantastic team who supports me, and that's a thing. So there's no like I, I mean, there's probably someone around somewhere in the world who's doing something with not that number with by themselves. I'm not sure how they're doing it beyond unless they're on TV or something. Um, I've got a fantastic team, and again, it grew from nothing. Um, so we have fantastic office support staff. We've got educators who have come from a variety of science museums across Australia. Um, they're highly creative. They want to help design and build things. Um, and our headspace is, uh, again, just because we're at our current size doesn't mean it can't grow because fundamentally we just want to get kids to know how, what the world's about. And if that means we have to grow, well, so be it. So um, what we're, it comes down to systems. I mean, eventually, uh, if this, then what? Yes. <laughs> so so use a scientific that, method to uh, operate. Yeah, probably. I suspect so, um, with a dash of um, craziness. <laughs> Very good. So how do you hire educators? What do you look for? Yeah, so how we look for them, um, actually, these days we get approached. Um, and that's a fantastic position to be in. Um, mind you, we need more staff in Brisbane, by the way. <laughs> that's a side note. Anybody? Um, no, just, just we always need more staff. But the, um, the people, um, LinkedIn's one. We'll put out a thing on LinkedIn or put something on Facebook. We used to use a lot of job advertising platforms, but it's such a specialized gig, such a specialized role as science communicator that it's effectively more about the industry knowing that you're advertising. So I put a quick blurb out and there's some people who follow us on Twitter and bits and pieces. So um, they usually go, oh, wow, they're, they're hiring again. And so we get this flood of applications and we get like this drip feed that happens. Like we usually get an application about once a week. Um and so it's then just trying to work out, well, what's our current needs now? 
Um, and we want to make sure that the role fits them as well. Mm. And so that's, that's sort of And what do you look for? A bit of excitement. I, know it sounds, I almost sounded very droll, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> a, bit, a bit of uh, – I just want that's, – uh, it's really painful. It's almost like when you watch X Factor and people are singers or whatnot. There's this particular personality which is hard to pin down, but you can just tell and know that they could handle a 1,000 people in the room and a TV camera on them. Or they can handle a bunch of year, uh, year 7s going nuts. They can handle a whole bunch of five-year-olds in a kid's science party. Personable, likable, pragmatic, a little bit excitable, but not to the point of where their brains aren't functioning properly. Um, just people who are curious. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a tough gig. It's, it's, I mean, teaching is a difficult gig where you do this training, but eventually you're in front of these kids where you just got to have to make it work. Um, but at, at the same point and flip point, I've met a number of people who are highly qualified, but sitting in a room of five meters by five meters, I swear I couldn't hear them. I could, I couldn't, there was, there was no presence. And so I'm, I'm looking for people that really, really want to make a difference and it just shines through. I don't know how to describe it. It's just yeah. that's probably the best way. So it seems to me that you're looking for particular personalities, enthusiastic personalities out there, kind of personalities uh, pleasant to people more than specific skills, right? Yeah, I mean, like the skills can be taught. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that's a bit odd to say, but I mean, the I mean, obviously, yeah, fundamentally, they need to have a you know a science background to some degree. I mean, a number of our staff have masters and PhDs in various areas, but the science is only is is fine and it's good and it gives you a background to be able to answer the questions correctly and all that. But if you are boring people. <laughs> You probably have no business in this in this work, and there's maybe something else that you're better suited for. It's not because you're a bad person. It's just simply just the audience partly is there to learn, but let's be honest, they're also there to be entertained. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, it's it does come down to that fine line, and we don't always get it right, but we're we're, we're getting we get close. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, let's wrap it up here. But I'd like to ask you. I'm sure that our listeners would like to get in touch with you. Um, sure. They probably have a lot of questions. Uh, maybe they want to engage you for uh, doing something uh, with them at their schools. How can they do that? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Sure, there's a few different ways. So firstly, we can't spell. So if you type in physics, <laughs> spell F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S, education. Now, by the way, as a heads up, there is a um, another company called Physics, which is a beer keg. Uh, so awesome. you, you will you will find those guys too. So if you type in the education after physics, you will find us um, into your favorite search platform. You will find our website. That's physicseducation.com.au. There's more than enough information there. Uh, me personally, a um, couple of different ways. Um, Twitter is a good way. Uh, ben Newsom, so B-N, then N-E-W-S-O-M-E with an underscore. You'll find us there. Or just go to the Physics Ed Twitter page or Facebook channel. Just type in physics education and just type in Twitter, Facebook, and all the rest, you will find us, and you'll certainly be able to have a chat with us, and we'll be able to help you out. Um, love to have a chat. We'll have all that in the show notes. Yes. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was amazing. Thank you, Ben. Thanks very much, guys, for having me on. Have a great afternoon. Cheers. You too, mate. Take care. That's all for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know. 
visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode. And subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, Stemiverse. That is S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.